knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why I've chosen to use their gear above all else, here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created, and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 215. Today I'm joined again by our good friend, Mr. John Eberhardt, for part two of this DIY report miniseries discussion. Today we're talking all about postseason scouting, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine out there. Um, I wasn't quite sure how to kind of open this this particular podcast, <clears throat> and we're going to keep this up front really, really short today. Um, we have our good buddy John Eberhardt on uh, talking about postseason scouting today. Um, but more importantly, uh, John and his family lost his son, Chris, uh, on the 21st of January uh, with his, uh, to his fight with cancer. Um, and we actually recorded this series of podcasts probably just a day or two before, uh, before this happened. Um, you know, I, I, I was not aware of, of, of what was happening or what was going on or what his son's health was. Um, it's really, really sad. Um, you know, you hate to, you hate to see that. I didn't know Chris personally, uh, have read some stuff by him, um, and have read about him. Um, he was really kind of the quintessential traveling bow hunter, uh, across continents, different countries, different species. Um, so the apple did not fall from the uh, fall far from the tree. 
Um, so with that, I think what I would like to do is out of respect for John and his family, I'd like to just kind of take a moment uh, of silence here on the show before we jump into today's podcast um, and send our deepest condolences to Chris's family and John's family. Godspeed, Chris. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. You are listening to part number two of the DIY Report miniseries with Mr. John Eberhart. And today we are talking postseason scouting. Mr. Eberhart, how are you doing? You still hanging in there with me? Clint, I'm still there. My battery hasn't died yet. <laughs> man, well, we, we hope, I hope you got that thing charged for a while, man. I'd like to, I'd like to be able to you know, have you around for a while. So uh, keep that thing charged, <laughs> would you? <laughs> I've got a backup phone sitting here. Right. <laughs> Good deal, man. So the first session we did together, if you guys haven't listened to it, go back and check it out. We talked all about late season hunting, specifically hunting high pressure uh, pieces of uh, pieces of land. Um, in this session, what we're talking about is what we're all probably kind of chomping at the bit to start doing here is really kind of diving into our postseason scouting. You know, deer hunting is a process, especially bow hunting, especially if you want to have any type of success or chase, you know, you know, decent age structured deer or caliber of deer. Um, it takes effort outside of those, those months where you're carrying a bow around. Most of the effort actually probably is, is performed or done in those, in those off seasons, whenever you're actually not carrying a bow. And, um, I personally always look forward to that time of year. Um, it just kind of marks a rebirth to a degree. And, um, I'm always willing and interested to go in and just kind of check out new pieces of timber and, discover maybe things I overlooked or didn't see during the season or whatever the case is and start putting puzzle pieces together for the upcoming year. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, so with that, John, man, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to jump right into the first question and just get rolling with this thing. How, how do you start your postseason scouting? Like I, I would like for you to just kind of walk me through your full process. And like, so the scenario is we're sitting here, it's, it's January. The season has just ended. What is the first step you take in starting to uh, lay plans for the next for the upcoming year? Okay, because I'm a sales rep in the hunting industry, mm -hmm. uh, January and February I'm balls to the wall working. I'm on the road visiting accounts, selling stuff. So I, I really don't get an opportunity to do anything hunting related until usually March. Mm -hmm. But that's fine because usually in Michigan we have snow on the ground until March anyway. So and I would never even consider postseason scouting when there's snow on the ground because when there's snow on the ground, uh, there's no hunting pressure, you know, at pretty much late December, January, February. So deer actually don't bed in the same areas in the winter as they do in the fall. So, you know, they move down into lower ground, closer to preferred food sources. So the sign you would see in the snow would pretty much be irrelevant to next fall's deer movement. And in my videos, I don't know, I know you have them, but I don't know if you remember, mm -hmm. um, when I was doing the post-season scouting video, I actually went in some timber, some oaks, that, and the acorns were obviously gone, but there was snow on the ground. There's probably six inches of fresh snow, and it had been there for, well, it had been on the ground for two weeks. And I walked through there with a camera and there wasn't a track. I probably walked 300 yards. And there wasn't a deer track anyplace. Hmm. And I know that area had deer going through it in the fall during deer season. So that was my point of proving that if you go out and post season scout, it doesn't give you a true look at what's actually there in the fall. 
so then I went down into a cedar swamp, like we were talking about in the first segment, and you couldn't put your foot down any place without stepping on on a deer track. They were just they were yarding down there. Mm-hmm. So and there's not that many deer in those cedar swamps in the fall as there are in the winter when they go down in there to yard. So you have to wait until the snow is totally gone. Then that's that's which is perfect because my job usually kind of gets slow in March, and then I I can get out there and postseason scout. And what I do, even properties that I've hunted before, you know, every year things change, food changes, and mass changes. Uh, if there's fruit trees on the property, that changes from year to year. So every year, the more you hunt any place, public or private, you learn nuances and you'll be hunting and you'll see activity over here or whatever. And you're like, you know what, this postseason, you know, I'm going to go over there and check that out. And I may prep, prep a location. And that's the cool thing about postseason scouting is you can rape a property. You mm-hmm. can go in every day from daylight till dark in March and April, you know, and spook every deer out of there. And it's totally irrelevant. It has nothing to do with fall movements whatsoever. Those deer are going to be back in there six months after you're done. So, you know, spooking deer is irrelevant. Scent control is irrelevant. You don't have to worry about that. You're, you can check every inch of the property. Um, you know, you keep in mind when you when you do a lot of scouting in preseason, a buck that's three and a half years old or older, you know, in a pressured area, they don't know you're scouting. Right. They've been alone all summer. They've been probably left alone since turkey season, and they probably didn't get much activity during turkey season, so they've probably been left alone almost totally since January. Right. And they know when there's an influx of human activity, that's a threat to their existence. So they begin, they, they just turn nocturnal. So your early season, you totally blow your early season by scouting very much and doing much location preparation during preseason. So postseason, you can go in, you can trash the property out, you can go in interiors of bedding areas. You know, I'm a big bedding area hunter. Uh, look for areas and bedding areas where there may be some oaks or some food or a little openings where there's several, you know, runways going through, um, you know, prep your locations. And then you never go back there till till deer season when you actually go in there during the rut phase. So you're mm-hmm. totally leaving those alone during preseason and during the early part of the season. Right. Uh, you can tell when you're looking at your trees or when you're actually looking at the vicinity you can actually tell how much security cover there's going to be during the rut. Right. Because a lot of times preseason, you'll go into an area and everything's got foliage on it and everything looks dense. Yeah. So you may prep something that you think I'm going to hunt this during the rut phases. And then you go back there during the rut when all the foliage is down on the, you know, on the low, on the low brush, as well as in the tree. And you stick out like a sore thumb and the security <laughs> cover is not there that you thought was there. So yeah. during postseason, you're looking at your rut phase locations Exactly the way they're going to look when you go back to hunt them, you know, in late October, early November. Right. So you're going to get up maybe an extra five or 10 feet higher in the trees because you want to be up by their peripheral vision. Because if you get down low where you might set up during preseason because you got foliage and it's a it's a false sense of security, um, you know, you're going to get up higher in the winter. Right. You can. You can block runways that are slightly out of distance and, and actually maneuver the runways with coming back closer to you. And if you got, you know, especially in bedding areas, if you've got 
you know, three or four or five runways coming into a destination feeding location like oaks or some apple trees or some briars where they like to eat those dark green leaves on briar pricker bushes. Um, you know, if, if you've got runways feeding a destination location, you can go and clean those runways out. A lot of times there'll be deadfalls in there, big branches will fall off trees and they'll block these runways and deer can't get down them anymore. So right. the more you can clean up these old runways and make them easier for deer to, to you know, travel down, the more odds of a bigger buck coming down it, you know, because his antlers will fit and stuff. Right, right. The one thing, the one thing I wanted to make mention of there, because you know, every, everyone knows you hunt, you know, public land and and knock on door free free permission properties. And when you're talking about the foliage being down, like there's probably some you know folks out there. Like if you're on public land, you know, different states have different rules of whether you can trim, can't trim, etc. But if you're yep. hunting on knock on door free permission, you know, you can get permission from the landowner. You know, and, and for the folks out there that are listening to us that hunt, you know, they're back 40, like a family property that maybe is in a high pressured area or whatever, you know, that also goes into taking that into consideration whenever you start trimming out your tree. If you're going to, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to be trimming your tree when it's all green and, and cutting things that are going to leave you bare and naked when you're in the tree during, during hunting season. So it's not just like the actual density of the cover around you. It's also taking into consideration what cover you're actually going to have in that tree during the time you're planning to hunt it as well. Right. Oh, absolutely. Location preparation is done during postseason too. Yeah. You know, when I go in to postseason scout a place, I'll go in. I don't, you know, I take nothing but my phone with a onyx and some water, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm just looking for locations and I mark them. And then, then I will decipher afterwards which ones I want to actually prep. And I go back with my preparation gear and I prep them. Everything is scouted and my location preparation is done prior to green up which is typically by the end of april i am totally finished with all my scouting and location preparation if i pick up a new piece of property or if i go to a new piece of public land and i don't have an option but to go in and do some you know preseason scouting then i will do that but i if 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 i know i'm going to be hunting something i get everything done i go back to all my other properties i go to my old trees that i've had for maybe 10 years you know and i clean clean up all the new growth from last summer because i haven't been there since you know i didn't clean up anything pre-season right last time i touched it was postseason year before so i cleaned up the summer growth and and because postseason you never know even when you go back to your old locations if it's at oaks or apple trees or or in a bedding area you never know what kind of food is going to be around. You know, crop rotations change, mass changes from year to year. So what yeah. may be on a hot spot this year sucks. <laughs> right. So, right. So so based on that, that's a good kind of segue because I wanted to ask you, you know, when you're doing your, your postseason scouting, you know, and, and you're looking at you're doing all the stuff you just kind of talked about from, you know, the runways to like crop rotation, you know, what you know, what, what was the acorn kind of crop look like this year or whatever the case is, you know, looking at browse, like where are they browsing on, on green briar and stuff like that to get a sense of where maybe if you don't have a lot of, you know, oaks on that property or whatever, you look at the browse and maybe you now kind of figure out this is the transition area that I need to be in that they're, they're using before they're going to like a, a feeding destination or whatever the case is. But what is, what are those like the kinds of sign that you're really kind of focusing in on, you know, that you're going to want to hunt the following year? Like when you're, what type of different sign are you looking at? What type of different features of the property are you specifically looking at when you're doing your postseason scouting? 
Uh, I'm definitely looking at bedding areas. I always scout the bedding areas. On mm-hmm. public land, I always go in areas where other people typically aren't going to go, where I've got to cross with waders or a boat or a canoe or uh, hip boots or something like that. So I'm always looking on public land for places, you know, where if everybody was trying to kill me, mm-hmm. where are the places on this property I might get up and move during daylight hours? Because that's exactly what deer, right? mature deer, um, you know, and, and the hunters that hunt normal type of prop normal the normal way they push deer back into those areas um, we're going to release a video here pretty quick that we did last spring and it's a piece of public ground that just came up about four years ago mm-hmm. so it's relatively new public ground and there's some ag in it and we we scouted this it's probably i think it's 300 yards by 300 yards so it was just quarter mile by quarter mile almost size timber mm-hmm. and it was square and it had a lot of mature oaks in it, whites and reds and uh there wasn't any mat or any uh, fruit trees but they had a lot of oaks and it had a river on one side that would have been on the east side with a lot of tall weeds and cattails and then on the west side it had a, a marsh with nasty brush and just junk just junk and water you know you'd mm-hmm. have to wear hip boots to go back through that and it was so interesting. We we actually saw there was still eight tree stands left in trees, ladder stands and hang-ons. And they were all in the open timber. So the open timber didn't have any understory. Okay, so there wasn't any security cover understory. It was pretty much just bare ground, leaves, and, you know, a lot of oaks. And I think hunters just wanted to be in the timber because they had a bigger visual and they probably were seeing deer there was a lot of deer in the area but they were probably seeing those and the board and the buck right and it's really weird we never saw when we got to both of the edges where the river was and the marsh grass and weeds and then the swamp on the other side both of those edges just inside those edges maybe five or ten yards there was run there was rubs <laughs> all the way down I mean, there was a runway just inside the cover on both sides going along the edge of the, the security cover from the timber. And they were, both sides were lined with rubs and there wasn't one stand on them, not one. All the stands were in the wide open timber. So, uh, you know, you, you, you got to gravitate to the security cover if you're on public land. And I've got to back up a little bit because I do something that I probably shouldn't and I'm going to admit to it. <laughs> The DNR wants to give me a ticket. <laughs> when I'm going back on public land and I'm crossing rivers and you're going across on a canoe or something with wader, you're going waders and hip boots and stuff. Um, I I usually will trim trim some form of a shooting lane. I'm going to trim some small stuff. I'm not going to make shooting lanes like I would on on private ground if I got permission. Right. Um, but I'm going to be trimming up some stuff. Um, just to get yourself a little, I, little bit of room. You, you got to give yourself a little, you, especially when you're hunting security cover. Yeah. Otherwise you'll never have a shot. Right. And and I'm back in the junk where I'm not really worried about anybody being back there and catching me. I don't want to say the word catching like I'm right. murdering somebody, but right. you know, I, I just, I just don't think it's that bad of a deal. Obviously I'm not back there cutting trees down or anything, but I'm definitely cutting cutting stuff where I'm going to have a shot because I've walked through public land. I mean, I've probably prepped 500 locations and scouted 30 or 40 different public land sections. 
And it sometimes it blows me away when I do see a stand back in some semblance of security cover. You know, I'll walk around it, walk the runways that are within shooting distance of it, just to see if this hunter's a threat mm-hmm. or just a deflector. And uh, and it blows me away that there's no most of the time they don't have a shot. I mean, they'd have right. to have the deer stop in a 12-inch gap right. <laughs> to get a shot. Right. And I'm pretty good at, bla- you know, just doing a vocal to stop a deer to take a shot, but to I, stop him on a dime doesn't always happen. Yeah. I've never had any of them stop on a dime. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. And to, to not have some semblance of a, a shooting lane, you know, a lot of times you'll find a phenomenal spot, but it's got, it's just so dense mm-hmm. that if you got up in the tree, you'd never have a shot and there's just too much stuff to cut. It would look, you know, that would be wrong to cut that much stuff. So you just can't hunt that spot because you'd never have a shot opportunity. Right. Right. But, uh, if, if there's something where I need to do a little bit of clearing on a shooting lane, I do. And it, and I see that all the time on public land too. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, I see all kinds of crazy stuff on public, <laughs> public yeah. land. You know what I mean? So I don't think that that's the, uh, I don't think there's too many people concerned about that. I think what they're worried about more than anything is people taking advantage of that and going in and, right. you know, beginning to, you know, rape timber and, and stuff like that. I think it's probably more the, more the, the ethos behind, um, uh, yeah. b- behind that, you know, kind of idea. But, you know, so I'm, I'm curious, man, you know, you have a lot of, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time and you have a lot of places pre-prepped and stuff like that, but I'm curious, yeah. you know, I would just like for the guys out there that maybe, or maybe newer to hunting public land, or maybe they're just newer to bow hunting in general, you know, do you scout differently if you're going to a new piece that you've never been to before, but you have the postseason, right? But the rub is, is that on the pieces that you're familiar with, when you see sign and you see scrapes, primary scrapes, and you can kind of differentiate your primaries from like your, you know, your satellite scrapes, if you will, you know, based on the location and stuff like that. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. But you may not know exactly when some of that sign's being made, right? It's on a, on a new piece. So how do you kind of go about that? Because I think a lot of guys kind of run into that, especially if you're hunting public land in a really high pressured area, you know, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, whatever the case is, you know, I've talked to this with, you know, about this with Zach, um, from the hunting public before. And one of the things that he's found is that earlier in the season, he would find just as an example, he would be hunting like in October and he would find a scrape line. Right. And then he would come back maybe a couple of weeks later and that scrape line would be completely dead, but there would be almost like a secondary scrape line where they got pushed from all the pressure and they started kind of laying down sign in the area that they were now inhabiting. So how do you go, how do you go about trying to differentiate or figure out when that sign might've been laid down? If you don't have that year over kind of experience on that property. Okay, I will say this. The hunting public guys, I love them to death. I've done some podcasts with them, but they don't hunt public land like Michigan and PA. Right. So <laughs> so there's there's a major difference in what they're hunting than what you and I are hunting on public land. Right, right. Um, but uh, it's, it's, when I'm going on a new piece of public land, no, I, I can tell 
I can tell if it's in zone three in Michigan, which is the southern half of the lower peninsula, mm-hmm. that's where probably 70 percent of the population of our state resides. Mm-hmm. So the public lands in zone three get absolutely pounded. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to and that's typically where the bigger bucks are, because there is more ag down in southern Michigan than there is in northern Michigan's almost all timber. So. I tend to gravitate my public land hunting in zone three, but when I'm down there, there's so much hunting pressure that if, if I can't find a location where it's absolutely mandatory, I access it with waders or hip boots, hmm. cross something, uh, cross a lake, cross a river with a canoe, go up a river with a canoe. Um, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even going to waste my time. Right. It's, it's a total 100% waste of my time because if I don't go, if I go in any spot where I can physically park a vehicle, park my vehicle, and get out and walk to a location with regular knee boots on, I don't care how much sign is there, there's not going to be a, the odds of a buck that I want to kill being there during daylight hours is really close to zero. Right. Uh, so, and you just have to know that. And it's, it goes back to what I said earlier. You have to pretend everybody there is trying to kill you. Put it in that perspective. You're an adult. You're not a child. You know, mm-hmm. when people are in Afghan, when they were in Afghanistan, they didn't leave the compound during daylight hours because they knew they'd be vulnerable. So right. you know, deer are the same damn way. They know where they're vulnerable and where they're not. And they're only mature bucks that have lived through two or three years of gun season, probably been wounded. You know, 28 of my 31 bucks I've shot in Michigan that made books all had wounds on them. Right. So they've been wounded typically, and they are very cautious about where they're going to get up and move during daylight hours. Now you throw a hot dough into the equation and that can change. Right. But as far as when they're not with a hot dough, uh, they just don't make many mistakes. Um, During pre-rut and rut, most of my my best percentages have been between 11 and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So, so just to give you some stats on that, um, 20, 20 of my Michigan book bucks were shot between November 1 and November 14, because our gun season opens on November 15. Of those 20 book bucks, seven of them were shot between 11 o'clock in the morning and three in the afternoon, while less than Eight percent of my time spent on stand was between eleven o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon. So I shot over about thirty-five percent of the buck in that time frame, while I spent less than eight percent of my time on stand hunting during that time frame. Right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, you know, I think I think it's always hard when you're walking onto a new piece, right? Like, like you were just saying, it's like, you got to find that spot where no one else is going to be. You got to find, you know, especially if it's high pressure, you got to be in that little nook and cranny, you know? And if it doesn't exist, you don't, you leave. If it doesn't exist, you abandon it. You're wasting your time. Right. And then, you know, qualifying the sign on a new piece when you're just not familiar with it is equally as challenging, especially if there's a ton of pressure there because you don't know, you know, even even in a good scenario when you're in a good area per se and you're away from people, you still don't know is that daylight sign, is it is it nocturnal sign? Just you know, de- depending. I mean, it could even be close to bedding cover, and if it's a really pressured piece, it still might be nocturnal sign. The it one, could be. Yeah. And the one yeah. thing the one thing that I've done, because I'm I mean, I follow your teachings in this regard where it's like I hunt a lot of primary scrape areas outside of bedding cover. 
that's like my go-to. My favorite place on yeah. primary yeah. scraper. And, Absolutely. And so I, I hunted and scouted some new pieces this past year and found some really, really great spots. And what I ended up doing was because I didn't really know when that sign was going to be laid down. I found some old sign, you know, some, what I thought to be a really great primary scrape area. Um, it was classic, John. It was, you know, a big primary scrape around this like low bush, like in, you know, this like kind of low grassy kind of area. And there were probably no less than like six or seven scrapes, satellite scrapes around it within like, like five to 10 yards. Right. Like, don't you just, don't you just love it? Yeah. It was classic. Like as soon as I saw it, I was like, I was like, oh shit. I was like, this is the spot. And yeah. so, but when I find places like that, or if I think there's a spot like that and I haven't been there before, like I'm a guy who uses cameras and this is kind of how I'll use them is I'll set them up because a lot of times, like a lot of times I've found at least, I would love to get your perspective on this. Like those big primary scrape areas, some people call them, you know, you and I call them primary scrape areas. Some people call them hub scrapes or community scrapes or whatever the case is. What I have found is that, you know, deer. I know com- right where you're going yeah, with this question. Yeah. Go ahead. Deer communicate <laughs> year round, right? And so if I'm on a new piece and I think I found what I think to be a hub scrape or a primary scrape, I'll actually put a camera on it and I'll watch it even during the 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 spring and summer to watch does hit it. Because if they're using it year round, then that tells me I'm in like the, I'm in like the genesis of like where the deer activity is going to be. Social and, activity. Yeah. Yep. The social hub is, and yep. that is only going to amplify when, when things start to get real toward mid October. And so that's right. what I've started to use to qualify sign that I find in the off season to tell me whether or not it's going to be, this is going to be good as soon as things start to heat up mid October or this might be a spot that probably I need to pay attention to probably like the last week of October. That way I'm not wasting my time on it. Do you kind of find similar things? Well, I've never done that, but that's a really, really intelligent idea. I, I love that idea. As long We can go as ahead and stop this podcast right now. John Eberhardt just told me. I, just, I shared something with John Eberhardt that you did not know, and you told me that it was a smart idea. So we're going to shut this down. I'm going to go home now. <laughs> No, that's seriously, I'm impressed. That's a, that's a very, very good idea. As long as the location has the adequate security cover yeah. and transition security cover to it yeah. for daytime activity, that's a very smart idea. I, I've never done that. No, yeah. And I've, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody else that has done that. Yeah, it's, it's something I started picking up on just because I was watching some cameras that I had just left out. I, I run some like all year round just some of it's just, I, I don't get back to them in time to pull them and they're just going to be place, you know, places I might put them again later. Um, and I started sure. watching and I was like noticing on certain scrapes, I was just getting annual, you know, deer hitting it annually, like all, all year long, like didn't matter what time of year it was. Now it wasn't as frequent, you know, but you were, I was having deer hit it, you know, every month, you know, in multiple times during a week or whatever. And so then I started thinking about that. I was like, well, man, I can really use this as a tool to figure out on new pieces, whether or not I should be hunting a scrape early or late, you know, when it's probably going to come in just based on the activity. And so I started doing that. And the specific spot I'm telling you about now are the one, not, not the only spots. I had a couple spots like that, but the one that really comes to mind, I actually had to kayak into as well. So it was like, ah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. It was like the, it was the, it was the end all be all. It was like hammer primary scrape. And then yeah. what I ended up having, it was multiple shooter bucks hitting that scrape, like all during, all during pre-rut and even into like early, early December, I think December 12th, I even had second rut activity. Um, they were hitting it with some does. So, um, That's yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm very privy to this, you know, social scrapes being year round scrapes, mm-hmm. those business, you know, everything business. 
Yeah. Uh, Bob just never put cameras on them. Um, but I think I think that's an absolutely yeah it, phenomenal it, idea. I yeah, yeah. it was just it was it was a way for me to qualify whether or not it was going to be, mm-hmm. um, you know, what time of year during pre rut or rut or whatever phase of the rut it was that I should be hunting it. You know, because a lot of times I think people see that sign if they're on a new piece or even if they're on a piece they're familiar with and they found new sign that they've never found before, like they don't know when it's been laid down. You know, unless you walked unless you happen to find it during the season when you're, right. you, know, you know, walking in which, or whether you were which, scouting. Yeah, or which really you shouldn't find new sign during the season too much because usually you shouldn't be raping any of your property other than your entry and exit routes to locations. Right. So and I, so, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And so that I started using it for that reason. I was like, well, if I can just figure out when it's being laid down and if, if, I, if they're hitting it year-round, then it tells me it's probably good any time. If it's not being hit year-round, then it tells me it probably just really turns on you know, whenever, when bucks really start to heat up, you know, so, but man, I know you also do outside of location preparation when it comes to your trees and stuff like that. Talk to me a little bit about how you might sweeten a spot up because I picked up some of this stuff from you as well. And I did that this year. Um, and I might even have to share, share a trail camera picture with you. I ended up taking some brush and kind of moving it around to kind of force deer toward this, uh, like one particular area. And I was going to end up hunting that area. I, I did hunt it and I didn't see the deer I wanted to see. Um, but I ended up having a very large, uh, he was probably, probably Boone and Crockett that ended up passing his way through there. And that was the deer I was trying to kill. And I just, it just never, it just never came to fruition, but I actually ended up using brush to kind of push him in a certain direction and it worked because he was passing through the camera. Do you, you, I know you do kind of similar things So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually, I actually mentioned that earlier about about altering runways Mm -hmm. and routes where you can actually funnel deer closer to your your physical tree uh, you know bring them within range by taking and typically you've got to do that on yeah you can do it on public with deadfalls but typically yeah. on private it's easier because the the brush you use when you're cutting shooting lanes you can use to actually funnel the deer in a different you know in a different direction yeah. or if i if i'm hunting something uh let's say I'm 40 yards from a crop field edge um, and there's a little bit of a rise up to the crops. And that's why it's not crops where I'm hunting is because it's, it's a little bit lower ground and the tractors can't work that. Right. Uh, you know, I'll take brush and stuff that I cut or deadfalls and I'll, I'll make some form of a perimeter along the edge of that crop field. So a deer will feel a little bit more secure moving down on that low side of that crop field during daylight hours because there's no visual from the crop field to where he's at. I've built, built brush up along that, along that edge. Um, but yeah, you can definitely funnel, funnel deer that way. It's, uh, it's a lot of work, but, uh, it, it pays off. And, and one thing about scrape area hunting, you know, a lot of guys, they'll, you're probably like me now. You know, I, I don't beat up any one location. It's pretty rare I hunt a location more than three times, yep. more than three sits a season. Yep. And I'll go into every season with 40 or 50 trees prepped. I'll probably hunt 10 or 15 of them, depending on mass production, fruit production, are the scrapes active this year? Is it standing corn? Is it a short crop field? You know, I'll hunt a lot of times I'll hunt a scrape area on the edge of a crop field as long as the field is in standing corn. As soon as the field's cut, there's not going to be a mature buck come to those scrapes because he's vulnerable to that open pick cornfield then. Right. Um, but uh, a lot of times hunters will have a decent scrape area and they'll hunt it for 
two or three times, and it's got good security cover, and they don't get an opportunity. And if they do that two or three times on two or three different scrapes, you know, they say, well, you know, scrape hunting doesn't work that well. And, you know, hunting is one thing. It's all about timing. No matter if it's the greatest location in the world, first off, you have to have a buck on the property that you're willing to shoot. Yep. You know, a lot of properties, every place I hunted this year, I never had a picture of a buck I would shoot. I didn't kill anything this year. Mm -hmm. Again, two years in a row. Um, So you've got to have something on the property that you would kill. And you have to be there when there's very, very few mature bucks in an area. Your timing has to be perfect with his timing for a shot opportunity to happen. Yep. So, you know, just because you hunt a spot two or three times and you don't get an opportunity uh, doesn't mean that spot's no good. The timing just wasn't right. I remember one scrape area I hunted, and uh, it was actually... It was in December. <laughs> it, was, it was on the just outside the edge of a bedding area, and uh, I knew this buck was in there. I'd seen him. Uh, it was eleven point, and I hunted it three sits in a row. And it was this little tiny. It was actually some runway scrapes coming out of the bedding area, and uh, I ended up shooting him on that that third sit. He just didn't happen to go by at the other yeah. two sits, but I knew he was there. I knew he was going from that bedding area to this picked cornfield that was about a quarter mile away and there was some there was some understory in the timber some heavier understory down this one section of in the timber and that that was his route it was a very faint route most of the deer were taking heavier runways on the outside edges going right. you know coming out of that bedding area and going down the edges yeah i but, mean i'm not i'm the same way it's like i don't i don't overhunt those scrapes um and you're right. Like the one particular area this year, a couple areas actually. I I knew I had good. I actually had the best year on camera that I've had in Pennsylvania probably ever this year, and I, I was missing them by a day. Like I had the right conditions hunt, between work and not being able to hunt Sundays. It was I was always just missing them by like a, a day. And actually, in most cases, it was I was missing them by less than 24 hours. I was missing them by like I wrapped up my hunt at dark and he came through at first light the next day. You know, oh, man. yeah. So it was just that's depressing. <laughs> it oh, it is. It is like tell me about it, man. It it happened. It happened. Uh, uh, what was it? The one? It was like October fifteenth or eighteenth or something like that. And I hunted him on the fourteenth or seventeenth, whatever it was, a Saturday. And then he came through the next, the next, the, the next day in the morning on a Sunday. And you can't hunt Sundays in PA. The next weekend, I had the right conditions, so I went back in on Saturday to hunt him again. Didn't show, showed back up on Sunday again, <laughs> like at 9.30 in the morning. And uh, this, that was like the, whatever it was, like the 24th or the 25th of October or something like that. And then I was getting ready to leave for Missouri. And so I couldn't be in the tree because it was like October 30th and 31st. And I was leaving on the 31st for Missouri for in Ohio for a couple of weeks. And uh, I'm sitting here working, you know, those two days. And then whenever I looked at the camera intel, he was, uh, he passed by that scrape twice, twice on the 30th in daylight between like eight 30 and like 10 30. And then twice in daylight on the 31st between like seven 30 and nine 30. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, there was literally six opportunities to kill that deer this year and just couldn't <laughs> just could not make it happen. You just weren't there when he was there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had him dead to rights. Like I knew where he was at. I knew what he was doing. It was just a matter of like timing it up. Cause I knew he was bedded close by. Cause like he was the first time he showed up on it. Um, I knew he was bedded close by. Cause when he showed up the first time 
it was in the evening. So it wasn't the morning. It was like the 15th or 18th of October. And he hit that scrape at like, like four thirty or five o'clock. So at that time of year, there was still more than like an hour and a half of daylight left. So I was like, mm. all right. I was like, I'm close wow. to where he's bedded. I was like, if he's showing up that early, it's not like on the cusp of dark, you know, it's like right. he's showing up with plenty of daylight. So I'm, I'm close to his bed, but just couldn't seal the deal, man. That's how, how, how it goes sometimes, oh, I guess. Man. That's why it's called hunting. That's right, man. But Hey, I think, uh, I think we've covered the postseason scouting pretty well. We covered, we even had a little extra bonus there of covering scrapes, but before we shut this session down, let folks know where they can find out more about you, what you have going on with your YouTube channel and the workshops you have coming up. Alrighty. Um, my website's D E E R hyphen J O H N.net, or you can just Google my name and it'll pop up. And, uh, I, I've written three books. They're on, they're for sale on there as well as some instructional DVDs. I've got information on my whitetail workshops, which are just about full for 2021. Uh, there are some slots open. The March class is full. I've uh, got a U- new YouTube channel. That's uh, called Eberhard Outdoors. Uh, probably had 15 episodes on that, one every week. Uh, a lot of new stuff coming out on that for scouting and uh, saddle hunting in the next three months. And uh, I've got a new signature saddle that came out last October, and it's being sold through Tethered. It's only being sold on Tethered's website. And uh, we had, I think they had 1,100 of them, and they all sold out really, really fast. So they're out of stock right now. They're out of stock. I just bought it. Saddle hunting is just yeah. taking off yeah. big time. Exactly. Um, one thing I wanted to say about the postseason scouting, yeah. we, we really didn't touch on this. You know, the three primary things that I look for when I'm postseason scouting, primary scrapes, hands down, is the first thing I look for. I've, I've shot over 50% of the bucks I've shot in the last 30 years, big bucks have came off some form of a scrape area. Uh, the number two thing I look for is natural food sources. So it'd be like acorn, you know, oaks, preferably white oaks over red oaks because they have less tannins. Mm-hmm. Uh, apple trees, Michigan has a lot of apple trees. You have a lot of old apple orchards. Um, so I look for food sources. And typically at your food sources is where you're going to, find your scrape areas because mm-hmm. those feed there and that's why bucks put scrapes you know you, yep. you find a couple apple trees dropping apples i can almost 100 percent guarantee there's gonna be scrapes around it or if you find a couple white oaks out in an area where there's not a lot of other white oaks around you're probably gonna have scrapes around that if there's some trees with some low-hanging branches so one would be uh scrape areas two would be mass and fruit bearing trees that are natural in the area uh, three would be interiors of bedding areas. I love hunting interiors of bedding areas. Uh, they usually require all day sits. You know, got to be in the tree an hour and a half before daylight, leave a half hour after dark so that you're not spooking anything with your entry when you're hunting or with your exit when you're leaving. They, you know, you're in there before they come in, you leave after they have left. Um, and then four is not really a location, but it's it's security cover. Everything I do uh, in Michigan, when I go out of state, I drop my guard a lot in Kansas or Iowa or whatever. I drop my guard big time because I can get away with murder out there. And there's just a lot of big bucks. But in, in Michigan, everything revolves around security cover. If there's not adequate security cover or edges of security cover, um, I, I won't, I will not hunt it. It's, it has to have so let's say let's say there's a scrape area underneath an apple tree on the edge of some timber. And then there's 
200 yards of timber, and then there's a bedding area, just a nice, dense, beautiful bedding area. But the timber between the bedding area and the scrape area and the apple tree, or the white oak or whatever that may be, is all open. It doesn't have any understory. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like that scouting I was talking that we did that we're going to have that video on. Um, a mature buck in a pressured area is not going to get out of that bedding area during daylight hours and walk through that vulnerable open timber to that scrape area. So that scrape area or that apple tree or white oak tree, it could have the greatest perimeter security cover around it. It's got the adequate security cover at the kill location, but it doesn't have adequate transition security cover to a known bedding area for a buck to move in during daylight hours in the evening from the bedding area to that feeding or scrape area location. It's it's not gonna it's just not gonna work. Right. So if it's on the edge of a, a cornfield, you know, it could work if the cornfield's standing because a lot of times big bucks will bed in the corn and they'll just take a few steps out of the corn. And, you know, if there's a mast or an oak tree on the edge with some scrapes, they're right there. They got lots of security. Care. They got a right. very quick exit route. Yeah. Two hops and they're vanish. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So. Awesome. Well, I think, uh, I think with that, we've covered postseason scouting. I think we can uh, wrap this one up and get prepared for the next one. Sound good. Sounds good. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating And hell while you're at it. Head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skullbrew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear. I'm Will Cooper host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.